Hey there, welcome to Eastlake Online. My name is Brent and I am here almost alone at the historic and iconic Uptown Theater. Uh, We are filming this live and I'm the teaching pastor here at Eastlake. So thanks for logging this morning. For those of you uh, who are watching this live, maybe you're watching on replay, but for those of you who are watching this live, thanks for like continuing the habit of, uh, of doing church on Sunday mornings. So we, we do, uh, there's, some, there's some value to that, I think, in terms of just habit response and all of that. We've heard stories over the past, I think this is like week six or seven that we've been doing this, but heard stories of uh, families watching this together, getting the kids up like on the couch and we're all doing this together. So if that's you, that's awesome. Um, some quick insight into the numbers. We've been seeing um, about 100 uh, viewers during kind of the, the time uh, that it's live and, and then obviously more after that too. But uh, that means about 100 families from Eastlake are tuning in right now and watching this, uh, which is awesome. Like the little community thing in the chat below, in the trivia beforehand, we're just trying to, be, trying to do anything to recreate a sense of community uh, during this time. Our live viewership, I was told this week too, our live viewership rises by about 20% about 10 minutes into this live stream, five or 10 minutes into this live stream, which means that in a world where like nothing seems normal, there is a sense of normalcy of people just showing up late for church. So kudos to that. And I can make that joke because they're not even here to listen to that joke yet. So uh, anyways, hey, we are on part three uh, of a series that we're calling Fudge Sickle, Now What? A series on uh, flourishing. Uh, basically, when tragedy strikes in life, when words, uh, or sorry, worlds collapse, when pandemic ensues, when divorce shows up unexpectedly, when addiction becomes public, how do you sort of move on from something like that? What does it look like to succeed or flourish? What does growth look like in those moments? Uh, what kind of shape does flourishing uh, take on in that season of life? Because we're a church, we obviously um, have an angle. We're always trying to interpret uh, what it would look like to live in the way of Jesus um, in our current circumstance. <clears throat> we don't always get it right, and we'll be the first ones to admit it, uh, obviously. But lucky for us, one of Jesus' disciples, one of his 12 disciples, um, actually, several of them decided to write personal accounts of their time with Jesus, but one of them kind of stands out for us, the one that we'll be looking at today. Uh, a guy named Matthew decided to write his own version of what it looked like to follow Jesus for him, like a view sort of from the inside, like after the crowds kind of dispersed and when Jesus kind of let his guard down on who he was. And Matthew's version is the most structurally built, built version of the four. So we know them as the four gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Luke wasn't a disciple necessarily, but he, he studied and did some other stuff. But uh, the rest of them were all kind of disciples and, and got their information from just personal experience. But and they're, all, they're all written very differently, not very differently, but somewhat differently. And Matthew specifically is structured in such a way that if you are a bullet point person, if you're like a, I need structural headings, I need like clear uh, processes and clear flows, then, then Matthew's probably like, that scratches that itch uh, for you. There's basically five different de- dis- teaching discourses in the book of Matthew, um, big sections of teaching, and then in the, between those sections, like travels and healings and all these kind of things that he did. Um, and then specifically, um, these, I think these teaching subsections would have been his way of saying, here's things that I remember Jesus talking about. Like, I don't think he sat down one day and goes, this was Friday and this is what he did. But like when you've been around somebody and especially like a a politician or a teacher or even a pastor like myself, you understand like they talk about similar things uh, to different groups of audience and they'll change and tweak things as they go. But like the essence of the talk is basically, here's the three points of his agenda or the three points of his, or here's the, one of the five sermons he always preaches. 
And that I think is what we get with Matthew in terms of this is just what I remember Jesus talking about. Because again, he wouldn't write this down for 20 or 30 years after the fact. Um, so he's basing it off of memory and with co- maybe, maybe some notes, but not like, you know, in detailed notes. But um, so it would, it would come down to what I remember, like the passion involved. And when Jesus talked, this is what he was passionate about. And so five different sections. And, this, and we're dealing with the very first of the five that he writes out in Matthew chapter five uh, through chapter seven. You probably know them or have heard them in the past as, as talking about the sermon uh, on the Mount. It's a wisdom text. This is what we looked at last week. Um, essentially pulling in from a cultural thing about this is what people uh, when, when people are trying to communicate their vision of the good life, this is what life is, is best lived in this way, in this manner. If you do these things, these observations, and not like God blesses you, it's just like this kind of person has got some things figured out in this way. And advertising, if that kind of seems odd to you, like I've never heard of a wisdom text, we don't call them that nowadays, but we do know about like visions of the good life. Advertisers everywhere have always been communicating to you and putting in front of you a vision of what the good life would look like. If you just wore these clothes, if you just drove these cars, if you just had this beer or this woman or this whatever, then, then you would be living the high life or whatever. Uh, a wisdom text is far more philosophical, agreed, but still um, orient your life in this manner and I promise it will be worth it. It's essentially what a, uh, uh, um, the goal of advertising, the goal of a wisdom text, orient your life in this way. And I promise you it will be worth it. And you base your reaction to that premise on how much, you, how much value you put into that person and how much you trust that person. If you're like, I don't think you have a good, clear vision. I don't like the way that you live your life and or I just don't trust you or whatever, then you don't take that at face value. Like every brand is telling you, this is gonna make you look cool. And there's some brands you look at and be like, I just don't trust you. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you're cool. So why would I trust you to tell me what is gonna make me cool, right? So anyways, um, when it comes down to this, for Matthew, when Jesus said, orient your life in this way, and I promise you it will be worth it. There was something in Matthew that took him at his word that says, I believe this guy. I, I, think, I think what he's saying is, is true. So much so that I'm going to base my life around this teaching, and I'm going to make sure that I'm going to put this down and capture this sort of essence of his talks for future generations and uh, people moving forward. So if you're new to like Eastlake or like the whole Jesus thing or whatever, let me just say this. One, you have incredible taste and also you have incredible timing um, because this, if, if you're looking for I wonder what the whole Jesus thing is all about. And maybe you've come to a church before and it's been about like their, their building or their politics or their something. Um, I totally understand that and I get that. This, this text, and, and maybe it's just lucky. I mean, we try and be all about Jesus, but this text specifically, if you were to be like, give, just give me the core pieces of Jesus teaching. Like it doesn't get any more core than what we're talking about here. It doesn't get any more uh, basic than in this way. So there's few better starting points for evaluating the Jesus option than Matthew chapter five uh, through chapter seven. So uh, we said in the, the first two parts of the series, he starts off with his beatitudes or the blessings or, you know, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are the, and his way of saying these, these kind of people are truly happy. This is pretty common in wisdom texts that they're pulling from. And people would expect um, what comes after that for they do this or whatever um, to be kind of 
you know, nice and rosy. Blessed are the people who are happy. They have a, a, a family with, you know, who are healthy and, and, a, and a, a wife and kids and all these kind of like really good things that you would kind of picture into visions of a good life. And yet Jesus kind of flips the script on this. He goes, blessed are the meek for they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are the people who get trampled on and persecuted for their right, you know, because of what they believe. His, his takes a very dark turn is what we said last week. His, you're really happy when things are kind of at their worst, which is kind of st- would probably stand out and does stand out to us in terms of that doesn't sound like true happiness. But he's trying to say, when you can live in contrast to your circumstances, when you can rejoice in the midst of pain and suffering, it is then and in those moments that you will truly experience what it means to be salt and light to the world. So that's the lead up to this part. And then we've taken this movement towards true, genuine happiness, and we're moving towards a sense of wholeness. Because I said last week, I think the entire Sermon on the Mount can be summarized by two different things, happiness and wholesomeness, happiness and wholeness in terms of our our person. So we're going to be transitioning to that. Today, we're going to finish off chapter five. There's about... uh, 30 verses or so, 17 through 48. I'm not gonna read all the verses because you can read and you got your own time. I'm gonna pick and choose a a few key ones and then trust that you can read on your own time uh, what you wanna do. But before we go into the text, we're gonna start in uh, chapter five, verse 17 and forward. Um, But before we do that, a little quick detour just to highlight and just remind ourselves the importance of how we read the Bible is super important. There's a quote by a guy named Scott McKnight who says this, there's two ways to read the Old Testament or to read, read the Bible. One way reads it from front to end as the gospel story, as to read it as a, you read, you finish the whole thing and figure out what the narrative arcs in, are in the whole thing and then how do these pieces fit into it. The other way reads from Genesis to Malachi with no preconceived Christian beliefs, no gospel orientation and in a historical manner. The moral life that follows from from each reading will vary. Now that's, that's the key part there. The moral, uh, the moral life that follows from each reading will vary. If you read it from front to back from a historical manner, it will tell you a lot about uh, information. It'll give you information about what happened to these people and whatever. But there's also a way that you can read it formationally, which is basically here's the entire story in its context. What does this passage say in the light of the story of the Bible and how do I live faithfully in that in light of everything about this? And Jesus is going to show us in this passage which option he and his apostles would read sort of the Old Testament for them as they move forward. So again, there's two ways to read it. We can read it for information's sake or we can read it to say, how can this change me? How can this be a part of forming me into the type of person that fits in with the story of God as it's communicated? So that's, if, um, if I'm giving it away, that's the direction I would like to go uh, today. So Matthew chapter five, verse 17 says this, um, Jesus just finished up salt and light. He did his, uh, his, his beatitude statements, his happiness statements, uh, and then he transitions to sort of practical examples that we'll get to in just a second. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Side note, that's code for Old Testament stuff. Law would have been the Torah, the prophets, all of the prophetic literature. I know there's other stuff in there, Psalms and Proverbs. Those don't fit into either categories. But for the summation of kind of the language that they use, this would be his way of saying all of our Old Testament scriptures. They wouldn't have called it the Old Testament because there was no New Testament at that point. So why would they call it the Old Testament um, or the, the, the Jewish scriptures? They wouldn't even probably call it Jewish scriptures at that point. This is just for us, their way of, of wording this. I didn't come to abolish it. I didn't say get rid of it. I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Really tricky verse. This has been like a key thing in terms of Christian interpretation for like hundreds of years. I'm not going to solve it in 25 minutes on a Sunday morning here. But 
um, I am going to kind of add some voices to it and go from there. Uh, they have spent their entire existence, keep in mind his audience that is hearing this for the first time, they've spent their entire existence attempting to keep uh, the moralistic uh, life that is required by the law or the prophets uh, in, their, in their time frame, in their uh, understanding uh, of this. Uh, and some of them have been more successful than others. They've either been victims of moralistic shame uh, and on the short end of external piety, or in the case of some Pharisees, winning at a game that Jesus' teaching is coming across as a game that's not worth playing. So no question, they are not neutral on the idea of living and abiding by the law and the prophets. They have either become really, really good at it or experienced the shame of not being good at this in this way. And so then when he comes and he says these things, I'm trying to kind of build into the emotion for us what they're hearing when they say this. I'm, for instance, and in, in us at home too, right? Like we're living in this era now um, where, you know, we, we, we like, we can read the New Testament. It's very challenging. It's a lot closer to home for us than some of the stuff in the Old Testament. And so how have you treated the Old Testament versus the New Testament? In, in, in sort of a way, in a, just a practical manner, you may not have worded this way, but like it's there, like it informs some stuff for, for the new. And I, I, I know it needs to be there. I'm not a proponent for saying, well, we, all we need is Matthew you know, uh, Matthew being through Revelation, just skip the other stuff. Um, we have a value for it. We don't want to abolish it, but like this idea of fulfill it. What does it mean that Jesus fulfilled these things? He did all of these things and then more or uh, whatever. Jesus comes and as we're going to see, he's going to establish new ethics, new standards. But as we're going to see, it doesn't mean the old ones are mistakes. There is a transformation or an evolution that is expected to occur in this way. A radical, as one commentary put it, a radical revisioning, a re-way of seeing these things without abolishing. And I love that idea of revisioning something. One of our favorite, my wife and I, our favorite podcast that we have listened to over the years has been Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History. I've talked about it here before. But one of the taglines or the slogans for the entire podcast is basically, here's what you think you know, but there's always more to the story. I'm going to take something that you think is pretty common knowledge, and then I'm going to adjust some things and fill in the blanks for you. So Jesus is doing this with the Old Testament law and prophets to these people. Now, jump down in verse 19. Whoever does these commandments and teaches others will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What are these commandments? The ones that he's about to give to us, right? Uh, and, and then whoever does these and then teaches other, for I tell you that if your righteousness, and this is a tough word I've mentioned before, righteousness is sort of a chameleon word in the entire New Testament. Different authors mean different things. Um, typically in Pauline writings, Paul equates it more to justice. So we've interpreted things as justice before. Um, that word can kind of, if you look it up in a word study of a, uh, uh, like a Bible dictionary, there's, there's, it, it, depending on the translation, it shows up in this way and this way, this way. But anyways, if we'll experience what it looks like in Matthew. For I tell you, if your righteousness does not surpass or go beyond that of the scribes and Pharisees, who we said were already winning at a game that Jesus is about to challenge and say it's not worth playing, then you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Unless you do better than even them, you will not experience uh, life in the kingdom or enter into the kingdom of heaven. So here's essentially what he's saying we need, right? These people then, and probably even us now, right? A greater righteousness. A greater righteousness is what we need. And our common interpretation about a greater righteousness is that you're not doing enough. When we read this text from Jesus, there's a sense in which we get, 
oh man, okay, so I'm just not doing enough. I need to do more. And who has not felt that over the past eight weeks? If you've ever stood on your scale or thought about how you used to go to the gym and how you used to, you know, have the house clean and how you used to do all these things and that feeling that is pervasive in us now that we are feeling now probably more than we've ever felt. Am I doing enough? I have all this time on my hands. I don't want to get out of this and find out that all of my friends like wrote books and painted paintings and I kept kids alive. You know what I mean? Like, and that's a big thing, but there's that we're, we struggle with, am I, am I doing enough? And then, and then to, to like, imagine like being around Jesus and hearing and, and, and loving all the things that he's talking about and then have him say this, I would imagine that that would feel like it would feel crushing a little bit. Um, because he would say, you know, these people that you've been struggling to live up to, you got to do even better than they do it or else nothing or no soup for you. Right. And, and that's got to be just absolutely defeating in this way. My wife, um, is right now homeschooling, um, our kids, obviously like, like many uh, of you. And, uh, I've sensed this and we've had, you know, conversations about this fear of, I just don't know if I'm doing enough for these kids. Cause she has this like insane fear that like, they're going to get back to school. And then um, the teacher's gonna be like, well, what did you learn over the time? They're gonna be like nothing. And you know, like, like they're going to go backwards or something like that. Right. Like they're going to be asked to name one of the four oceans of the world. And they'll say like the Columbia river or something like that. Or the fact that there's actually five oceans. And I just said four and you didn't blink. You're not doing enough. That's the problem. That's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to say here. But I don't think that this is about Jesus saying, in terms of greater righteousness, I'm expecting you to do more, but in, uh, in, in a different way, in kind of a twist on this, in evolution or a revisioning of sorts, I want you to do things with a wholeness that oftentimes isn't a part of our moralistic endeavors. You've been doing some things, but you've been doing them on the side or in external ways and there's a sense in which I want you to do it holistically. I want you to do it as, with a sense of wholeness, as we're going to see. Um, righteousness, as I think Matthew kind of dis- defines it, if I had to kind of put together a definition word for it, is God-centered behavior that virtuously comes from an internal consistency. And if you're taking notes or whatever, really just internal consistency is the key, key takeaway from that. Um, when, 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 he, when he's talking about a greater righteousness, a greater internal consistency of my being, that when I do it, I do it because I want to do it, not because I want other people to see me doing it, um, but th- th- there's, I, I, I do it and I want to do it. There's motives involved, there's ethics involved, there's all this kind of stuff. And from here on out, he's gonna give us six examples and in a formulaic, ma- formulaic manner, because that's Matthew style, and I mentioned if you like formulas and, and you know, workflows and whatever, you're gonna love this a- a- as well. He gives us auditory anchors and mental memory hooks by saying this phrase, you've heard it said, but I tell you this, you've heard it said, but I tell you this. He's gonna do this six times in two different sections of three, but it doesn't matter there, but... He's not eliminating a prior ethic, by the way. As, as I mentioned, he didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Um, he's revealing a fuller expression of God's will for his people. There is a way in, of doing this that is more um, whole life-giving. Um, I, I, I don't want you to do the bare minimum to get by. I want you to do it with a sense of wholeness in this way. Um, He's, you know, he's, he's basically saying, if you do what I'm telling you to do, you, you won't have to worry about 
this first one, right? You've heard it said, but I'm going to tell you this. And if you do this one, you won't have to worry about this. Why? Because it doesn't count anymore? No, because you're probably not going to murder someone if you don't get angry with them in the first place or get angry to the point of murder in the first place, right? Because that, that's the first one. Um, don't mur- You've heard it said, don't murder. I'm telling you, don't even get angry at a person to the point where you're saying things to them that you don't actually mean. So is murder's okay now? Like, no, no, it's not. Like, you just won't even get to that spot. In, ev- in this instance, everybody would agree that God has prohibited murder and that Jesus is not offering some sort of alternative, antithetical reading. You've heard it said that, like, murder's wrong, but I'm here to tell you, uh, the issues surrounding murder are complex, ethically, and we can get to that spot. I think he's trying to say, like, there's a wholeness to this. It's not enough to say, well, at least I didn't kill the guy, right? Like, there's... There's a better way of doing that. There's more room. There's more meat left on that bone, right? To be able to kind of move forward with this. The second one, I'm not going to go through all six, but I'm going to highlight a couple of them. Um, Here's the second one, ready? Uh, Verse 27. Hey, you've heard it said, this is the formula again, you've heard it said, but I tell you, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, right? This is one of the, the 10 commandments. This is a big thing. But I say to you that everyone who looks at another man's wife with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And we would say, now, not the most, again, not the most popular verses to preach from, not a typical life verse for people. If this was on a t-shirt, probably not getting sold very well, right? It doesn't go out that well. Tough to move those ones. Never in the Mosaic covenant or at any other time did God ignore or disregard the inner or ethical state of inner disposition. It's not as if God was used to be involved only in the external, but now he starts to care about the internal. He's always cared about it. It's always been a big deal. He's saying this, like, I know this is in the contrast, and we get stuck in the weeds. We're like, well, what, is, what does this mean? What does um, lustful intent mean, right? What is, well, tell me about that word, because uh, does it mean lingering? Does it mean staring? Does it mean whatever? Does it mean, what if it's not his wife? What if it's just somebody? What if it, you know, all this kind of stuff. We get stuck in these weeds, and I think what he's trying to say is, like, this is a pretty low bar. Well, I didn't sleep with her. He's like, there's, there's a wholeness in, the, in this, you can, you can do things for the external picture of it, but God is calling us to a greater response in this way. And it's not like Jesus is saying God was only, used to only be involved or interested in your external obedience and now he's adding something to this. He's, it's always been in this way. He's pulling back the veil on outward ethics and reminding God's people, especially the extra super special holy ones, that true righteousness cannot be construed as mere outward obedience. There's an internal consistency expected in all of this. It must be understood as wholeness. It's not good enough to say, well, I didn't murder the guy. Well, I didn't sleep with her. Yes, thanks. Very good. But do you see how there's more meat left on that bone? Yeah, you do see that? Uh, Another one, he goes on, he says, don't take oaths. Um, And uh, that's one of the six things that he says here. And it's basically, when when he says this, um, and, and by the way, Christian tradition have kind of taken this uh, like Anabaptists are like, we will not sign anything that's an oath. We will not swear in this. You can't make me put a hand on a Bible and say, I'll tell the truth or whatever. It's kind of an odd one that is a lot softer and easier than the first two that I mentioned there. Um, but what it, sa- what it essentially says is he's saying, don't do that. Like, because what that does is it assumes something. It assumes this, like, all right, I swear from this point on, I'll tell the truth. To allow for under oath situations means you're accepting non-oath circumstances. You shouldn't need to swear to tell the truth if you lived a life that always told the truth. 
If there was internal consistency with your yes being your yes and your no being your no, you wouldn't have to be like, okay, so now I promise to tell you the truth. A whole life, a whole person coming into that should be like, that's just an irrelevant. Will you do this? I don't need to do this. Well, are you afraid of doing this? No, but if I do this, then I'm also affirming that there are times when I wouldn't have to tell the truth because now I'm not under oath. Just that's three of the six. There's also one on divorce, which is a tough one. There's one on commensurate punishment so that vengeance isn't greater than the crime. Um, There's one on loving your enemies and praying for those who are out to get you. It's like really, really difficult stuff here. And some of it's nuanced and some of it's like seemingly extreme. In fact, when I mentioned, hey, we're gonna look at like the core teachings of Jesus. And if uh, if you read those and you didn't have any historical context with that, it might be like, this is just impossible. This is just too weird. The one on divorce just seems like unrealistic, you might say. And it's, it's really true. They, like, they probably deserve their own teaching series, and that's not the goal of this one. Um, so basically, when I was reading this and studying this, I thought, well, you know what? We'll do someday, someday in the future, we'll do a series. So, so coming soon to an uptown theater near you, uh, a series called, yeah, about that, um, like in spring of 2021 or something like that, like the six things that Jesus like, these are, you've heard that said this, but whatever. The point of it all is that this is an apocalyptic way of writing this out. And when I say apocalyptic, immediately our minds shift to sort of Revelation and Daniel type stuff with like dragons and chariots and all kinds of kind of weird end of times sort of thing. And that's not really the point of that. An apocalyptic is something that reveals or exposes the truth about something. In fact, I think the entire book of Revelation is an apocalyptic on the, the empire. When we had uh, Dr. Ron Herms in here a few months back and he spoke on Revelation, he talked about how this was their way of saying the empire is controlling you. You do know that, right? Ooh, we lost some lights. Ooh, there we go. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, you, you do know that, that something is happening here and it's always been happening. You just have not had eyes to see it. So let me give you a lens in which to look at this and to actually see what's happening in this way. Um, you know this because uh, you've experienced this. You, you, real, you do realize that when, this is what he's saying or these, these examples are trying to prove. You do realize that when you're doing that, that you cannot murder a guy, not sleep with somebody, not lie under oath. You do realize that you can do those things without actually being fully into it. You can uh, compartmentalize your life and your obedience into a way to obey your parents' rules if you're a teenager without really obeying the spirit of the rules, right? And when the parents go, but you didn't do this, you're like, but I did, right? Yeah, but not in the way that I asked you to do it. I mean, you cleaned your room, but it's in the closet. I mean, you just shoved it in the closet, right? But my room's clean, right? That, I mean, that's the kind of, you know, you know what I'm actually asking of you, right? Like we're both clear, but you've kind of figured out this mental game to kind of warm, do a little work around in this way. And some of you know this because you've been in relationships like this. Um, you can be into something, but not fully into it. Some of you have been in marriages like that. Um, or maybe this time in quarantine has kind of revealed, I'm currently in a marriage like that, which is tough. You can treat your career like that. I'm into it, but I'm not really fully into it. You can do church like that. Not this church, of course, but the one you went to before Eastlake. That's the church that you could do that to. And then something would happen. And you wouldn't use these words, but an apocalyptic thing happened and the world didn't end in fire or whatever. It was just like something revealed itself to you that's always been true, but you've been blind to it. 
And then all of a sudden you're exposed to the reality of the way things actually are. And then you're faced with the decision, what are you going to actually do about it? Jesus pulls the curtain back and says, God's, these rules have been in place to kind of be protective measures, but you do know that it's deeper than that. There is a wholeness in which he's calling us to that's going to be expected of you. It's going to be a greater righteousness, a greater internal consistency than what we've seen displayed by the religious leaders of the day who he would later go on to say, woe is you. You clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is so dirty. What in the world? You do things so that other people will see and think, oh, they're fine. Everything's great. It's going to be greater than that. That's what it's going to take to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So I think in terms of even sticking with this apocalyptic sort of reveal moment, I think it's been interesting for us as a culture, as a nation, as an international presence, um, this pandemic thing has been sort of an apocalyptic thing for us in this way. It has pulled back the curtain on the economic inequality that we knew already existed, but like now... There's like advances in kind of the stats and the data on this, this disproportionate endangerment based on socioeconomic things or racial things or whatever. Uh, There's been a fragility and a danger associated with globalization. We've always thought, oh, the world is getting flatter. Our supply chain commerce has been so, it is so much easier to get something shipped from there and shipped over here. This lowering of the bar of like time, the time, the speed, the consistency has always, yeah, but there's like a danger in that. The spread of the epidemic has been faster than ever before. Like all of a sudden we're, we're, we, we look at it and be like, oh, wow. If the spread of information can be that fast, so too can the spread of this virus be just as fast, right? And this has been revealed to us that globalization, while good, also presents new dangers that we may not have faced before. Centralized government control versus personal freedoms. I mean, you're seeing this with the announcement on Friday and everybody's going, I mean, this is a revealing moment for us. And the question then becomes, what do we do as a result of this? Listen, that is what Jesus experienced with, with Matthew. That's what Matthew said. Jesus did this all the time with people. When I think back and I remember how he taught, he pulled back all of the external moral rules and said there's more to it than just that. There's an internal consistency expected of you from this. And so he finishes it off Finishes off, I think, this entire kind of subsection after the light and salt and light thing of this and into this, um, you've heard it said thing, with this verse 48 closure phrase that you may have heard before. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Um, and that has been kind of a call to perfection, again, that fits in with the idea of greater righteousness, except for the fact that like, we know we can't ever be as perfect as God, and then we feel bad for the fact that we're not perfect because we're sinful human beings. And so um, I, I, I totally understand that. And I, I do think, I wonder, this, uh, this word perfect, the Greek word is teleos, it, it, it basically means like an end goal. Be, have your, uh, the end goal be as good as, as, the, as your heavenly father, his, his intentions and his, his goals and his strategies for getting there or whatever. Um, perhaps perfect isn't, to use the pun, perfect. perfect. Perhaps that's not a great word in light of what we've just done. And I know this, this, can, this verse can feel like it might be a summary of the very last thing that he talks about, which is basically love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I really think it's kind of a summary verse for the entire thing as a whole. And to say that the disciples me must be teleos as God is teleos, I think is to say that they must be whole, 
or virtuous, singular in who they are, not one thing on the outside, but another on the inside. So perhaps a better way of reading this would be this interpretation of this verse. Verse 48, therefore, you shall be whole as your heavenly father is whole. And may we be the type of people who in our prayers towards God, as we say, God, shape me and mold me into the kind of person that you want me to be. God, help me to have the internal consistency of not just doing what I know to be right, but like wanting to do it for the right reasons. Help me to have the external also, because there have been multiple times where uh, even in my life, I want to get on social media or something and say something and do something. And I stop because I don't like the image of what is about to be said. I don't like this. Um, and I'm smart enough to be like, um, it's just not worth it. Right. Um, and yet like I, I know or, or divisive or, or lash out at somebody, or I'm smart enough to be like, this isn't the time to call them out on their crap. This is just be like, take the higher road and do this. But then what I do is I congratulate myself on how gracious and merciful I am. And instead of that, what if I said, God, give me the internal consistency to never have to be like, never have to want to pull back for fear of external um, showing and have that be just something that emanates out of who I am as an internal piece. Um, that I never even have to be like, good job, Brent, for being aware of this <laughs> and, and, and monitoring image projection. But instead going, God, let my, let my inside, let my, my heart, like that's the core, the seat of the emotions, uh, biblically speaking, um, let my heart match up with what I want to do. Let me not do it so that I'm capturing something or protecting what people think of me, but let it actually be me. And I think Jesus is calling us um, and really showing us that um, if you settle for external stuff, it's going to be difficult. You're going to be either on the wrong side of shame, uh, of religious shame or, you know, whatever, or you're going to be winning at a game. If you're really good at it, you're going to be winning at a game that doesn't even matter. And what I'm calling you to is a greater righteousness, one that actually will help you enter into the kingdom of heaven. So may we be the type of people who in our prayers and in our goals, God, ask, please give me an internal consistency with what you've called me to be.